Good morning. Welcome to Grace. My name is Derek, and um, just want to say before we jump into today's message, I want to let you know where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be starting a new sermon series called Relentless, and um, this is going to give extraordinary insight into the character and the nature of God. And so I just encourage you uh, not to miss this series. It starts a week from today. Well, if you uh, are new to Grace, I'm glad that you're here, or if you've been away for the last couple of weeks, um, just want to tell you where we are. We are in the final message of a three-part series called Benefit of the Doubt. And really the premise for the series is that um, we most often think of doubt as a negative thing, and especially when it comes to, to matters of faith. But actually, if we don't just casually try and dismiss or explain away doubt, um, or just kind of bury it somewhere and pretend it's not there. But if instead we turn and we face our doubts, we face our questions, we face our struggles head on, um, there can actually be something really beneficial that comes out of it. Because what can often happen is that if you've got big doubts, big questions for God, and instead of just trying to dismiss those, you instead turn those to God. And you say, God, I don't understand this. Help me figure this out. This is my big doubt. What that does is that actually focuses your prayer life tremendously. And it can also focus your study or maybe encourage you to go into certain passages of the Bible because now you have questions, you have doubts, you have things you're trying to figure out. And it can be very catalytic, actually, in your spiritual journey if you will engage those doubts head on. And what I've found in my life, and I am very much uh, someone who struggles with doubt when it comes to faith, but I have found that whenever I've engaged those uh, doubts head on, that I've come out stronger as a result. When I come out on the other side, my faith has actually been strengthened. So throughout this three-week series, just for a little catch-up for, for everybody, um, we have been looking at famous Christians in the Bible who doubted. These aren't people who were skeptical about Jesus. These were followers of Jesus, people who believed in Jesus but had doubt. You do not have, you can be a Christian and have doubt, we see through the New Testament. So two weeks ago, we looked at a man named John the Baptist, who was the prophet who was going around saying that Jesus was the coming Messiah who had been predicted. And this was all well and good until John the Baptist got thrown in prison. And from his prison cell, when Jesus was doing all these wonderful things for everybody else, but his situation wasn't changing, he began to doubt and in fact sent some of his guys to go and ask Jesus, so are you really the one or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus' response to John the Baptist and really the response to us when we have our moments of doubt is, John, you need to hit rewind and press play on those different things that you've seen and that you've heard and that you know. And so the encouragement for all of us was when we have our doubts, um, we have to come back to those times in our lives that really can't be explained on a logical level, those God moments in our lives. Uh, come back to those, hit rewind and press play. That can really strengthen us and get us through difficult times. Last week, we took a look at the famous Doubting Thomas, the most famous doubting disciple in the Bible, and um, he, he was not there when Jesus appeared to his disciples the, the, the first time, and so he said, unless I see it, unless you show me the money, I'm not going to believe, and uh, so Jesus reappeared 
for Thomas's benefit and said, here you go. Here's proof positive. Examine the evidence. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Now stop doubting and believe. And we also talked about how um, Jesus did not just give evidence to Thomas and those disciples he appeared to, but Jesus has actually given us all evidence as well. The evidence that Jesus has given us is that he stepped into the pages of human history. We talked last week about history tells us, accounts outside of the Bible and outside of Christian sources tell us all kinds of things about Jesus and about Christianity. And so our faith, there's actually evidence when we doubt, when we struggle, that point us to what we believe can be trusted and it's true. So last week I said that Today, we were going to take a look at what is, in my opinion, the most disturbing doubt in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew was a tax collector who uh, left everything to follow Jesus, and then he wrote about it. And in this final chapter of Matthew's account, just to set up a little background for you what's happening, so Jesus has been crucified for his claims to be the son of God. And his body is placed in a tomb. And there are a couple of ladies who go to visit his tomb on that Sunday morning, which now today we refer to as Easter Sunday. It's Mary Magdalene. And then it's another Mary who was not the mother of Jesus. So Mary was a very common name back then. So these two Marys, they go to the tomb. And just as they're getting to the tomb, they're greeted by two angels who tell them that Jesus is in fact not here. He has risen from the dead. And that's where we pick up Matthew's account in verse 8 of Matthew 28. It says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell Jesus' disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We fast forward a couple of verses to verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Pay attention to these next three words. But some doubted. I'm just going to read that again. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And keep in mind, they have just seen the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. But some doubted. That is most disturbing. I can kind of understand what we talked about two weeks ago with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was imprisoned very early on in Jesus' ministry. He really didn't have a chance to see a lot of Jesus' miracles, to hear this amazing teaching. He didn't really get to behold a lot. He saw a little. But after quite a time in prison, you can understand when Jesus didn't come through for him, you can understand his doubt. And you kind of understand 
doubting Thomas and his dilemma. Because although, yes, he had all his friends there who were overjoyed and they'd seen Jesus and that should have been enough for him, there's a part of us, and many of us are like this, where unless we see for ourselves, we're going to doubt. And so we get it. Thomas, in the midst of his doubt, before he was reassured, he had not seen Jesus himself. And so on some level, this makes sense to us. We can understand those doubts. But this, here is Jesus with his disciples, and he has appeared to them from the dead. And they doubted. One of the things that's interesting to me, and we touched on this last week, is why in the world would Matthew not leave this little detail out? Think about it. The reason that Matthew writes his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is ultimately, the purpose is so that other people would, would learn the way we learn by reading it, and they would come to faith in Jesus. That's why he left this lucrative career as a tax collector and went to follow Jesus. This was worth giving his life to. And so he wants the same thing for many, many other people. Well, if he wants people to come to believe, why in the world would he not leave this little detail out? If they doubted upon seeing the resurrected Son of God, in his glory, why, why would he not omit that? In fact, if you look at the text, it's almost like he goes out of his way to include it. It's like the last little clause there at the end of that statement. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But, oh, don't miss this. But some doubted. That is most disturbing. Especially if you kind of feel like, okay, the resurrection is like the one thing, case closed, no doubt. You've seen Jesus, that settles everything. And here we have disciples that see Jesus, the risen Jesus, and they doubt. What in the world are we to make of this? How do we try and resolve some of this tension that maybe you're feeling right now? Well, some scholars have postulated a theory. And the theory on how in the world the disciples could be doubting after seeing the risen Jesus goes like this. So even though in Matthew's gospel these 11 are specifically mentioned, maybe there were more than 11 on the scene. Jesus had way more than 11 disciples, many, many followers. And they point back to verse 10 in that, uh, Matthew 28 that we've looked at already, where Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And they say, you know, that word brothers, you know, going back into the Greek and you look at that, could that be actually ref referring to like all of Jesus' followers, all of his disciples, and that they were all given instructions to go to Galilee. So that then in verse 17, even though the 11 have been specifically mentioned just before, the, when it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, it's actually not just pointing to the 11, but it's actually pointing to maybe hundreds of disciples who were there. And one of the things that can make a little bit of a case for this theory is that um, according to John's gospel, um, the, the, Jesus had appeared 
to the 11 disciples. There were 12, but Judas hung himself after he betrayed Jesus, okay? So we're, we're down to 11. So Jesus had already appeared in Jerusalem, which is where they were, where all this went down. And you have Galilee, which is about a week's travel away. It would take some time to get there. So if you work with the different accounts, you get this idea that, that he's already appeared to the 11, and now they're being sent out to Galilee and to a mountain. And a mountain would have been a great spot for a, like a big announcement or a big gathering. You could have a whole bunch of people there on the mountain. And so, um, especially if Jesus was going to make some big proclamation, which, which he does. Furthermore, uh, the theory goes that um, if you look at uh, some of the things that Paul has written, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He uh, documents uh, some of the um, stuff that happened around the resurrection, and it says, After that, he, meaning Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And so the theory goes that if in fact, although this passage just refers to 11, if maybe there were more like 500 disciples, then maybe this is a little easier for us to wrap our minds around how some doubted. Because here you've got this very large gathering and you've got people that are sitting up close to Jesus and then you have people that are way back. If you've ever been to like a sporting event or some concert or something and you're like way in the back, it's a little bit of a different vantage point, isn't it? And so maybe it was some people more out on the periphery. And you know, maybe they were like the less committed uh, followers of Jesus and they struggle with doubts and stuff like this. And maybe, you know, they forgot to wear their contacts that morning. They'd left their glasses at home and they just didn't quite get a good look at the risen Jesus, and so they doubt it. That's, you can kind of work out this theory and make, make it feel a little less tense. And I just want to tell you, if you're here, and you've kind of always had this notion of Christianity presented to you as like there's never any tension, there's never any mystery, everything can be answered with these nice little theories and packages, and you like that version of Christianity, then what I want you to do is I actually want you to know that the sermon is now ending, okay? And what you should do is in all seriousness, if this is just going to totally mess you up, is just go ahead and kindly dismiss yourself out of the auditorium. You now have an extra 23 minutes of your life um, to, to go and reflect and to think and praise God. Okay, there goes one young man right now. He's out of here. <laughs> Beautiful. Another one. Um, just cover your ears, okay? And if you're listening online, watching online, go ahead and just click the stop button because the sermon is ending at this point. So while that is a very compelling theory and it has been put forth by some, some reputable scholars, it's not actually the majority view of scholars that this was an, an event attended by 500 people. It's not the majority view. Now, what I think about all this is that actually whether there were 500 there or whether if you just kind of take a more plain reading of the scripture just on its face value and you just see, hey, you know, he's kind of talking about the 11 and then he's referring back to the 11, which, which, whatever way you go with that, here's the reality of the situation. Either way, we are talking about a resurrection appearance of the Son 
of God. This is truly true. And no matter what you have to say, it says some of those followers doubted. They doubted. And there's always going to be tension around this. In fact, this is one of the things that I love about the Christian faith, and I love about the Bible, and I love about our God, is that there are many things, many questions that we will have that we are not going to get fully satisfactory answers to in this life. We're just not. There's tension and there's mystery, and that's okay. It's one of the reasons why we call this thing faith. Faith isn't always something that you can neatly package and put into a nice little box. It's not always polished and perfect. Sometimes it's flat out messy. And I think that this is just one of those cases where it's a little disturbing. I actually want Matthew to have omitted that and I want him to be like, and they, they saw, boom, they were good. But it doesn't say that. So, what are we to make of this? Do we just stay in this kind of tense uh, environment? Well, let me give you just one, one thought that might help a little. I'm not saying it's going to resolve the full tension of it, but work with me here on this. So let's think about the disciples for a minute. Let's think about the 11 and what we know about these disciples. Now, these disciples were very loyal. They were courageous, okay? They were, it was, they were admirable people. But it's fair to say with no disrespect to their mothers, that they were kind of clueless. We talked about this last week. They didn't always understand what in the world was going on. Jesus was constantly having to explain these parables to them. But even more importantly, he was trying to explain to them the ways that that the kingdom of God was going to be advanced. And they could not wrap their minds around it. And here's why it's not fair for us just to beat them up. Okay, because here we have the Jewish nation under Roman rule and oppression. The Jewish people and the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah were predicting and pointing to someone who would liberate God's people, who would set them free. And so from a human perspective, what do you think setting us free means when we're under Roman rule? Pretty obvious, right? It means getting set free from Roman oppression, that the nation of Israel would once again be lifted to its great state, that it could be this, you know, shining city on a hill and could be a great example to all these other nations, that somehow Jesus was going to restore this. So in their mind, they saw this Messiah as this rising political figure or this rising military figure, whoever could be in a position of power to deal with these other worldly powers. That's why they're constantly so confused. How in the world do you have to lay down your life? He's been getting this following, right? I mean, it started small, but over years now, thousands and thousands of people are following Jesus. This thing is taking off. It's unbelievable. And then all of a sudden, what happens? He says, no, guys, I got to suffer and die. They don't get it. They don't get it. All of a sudden, he is put on a cross. He's dead. Movement over. And guess who's next? Guess who's next? Who are they coming after next? inner circle. So, you can imagine all the turmoil and everything that they're feeling, and they're not expecting 
expecting the plan the way Jesus explained. It's easy for us 2,000 years later, Monday morning quarterback, looking back, we can make sense of this. It was very difficult for them to make sense. So, the next thing they know, boom, Jesus appears to them. Have you ever had a moment where something was happening and it was so unexpected, it was so surreal, it was so absolutely preposterous and unbelievable that in the midst of that moment, you said to yourself internally, is this really happening? Wait, wait, are you serious? Is this happening to me right now? Or after the fact, you go, wait, seriously, did that really happen? And maybe you turn to someone who was there and say, did that really just happen that way? Did he really just say that? Did that, I can't believe, did that just really go down? I believe this is where the disciples were. I had one of those moments when I was a teenager. I um, had a job delivering pizzas for Pizza Hut. And uh, this one order uh, was out to a very swanky neighborhood in Cincinnati. It's just like mansions. And I mean, this was just like very rich people lived in this part of town. And um, I noticed the name on the ticket was the name Jennings. And I didn't think much about it, but took my pizza order out there to this house. And a little backdrop for the story. So I'm from Cincinnati originally, and I'm a diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. So um, I go and I, I knock on the door of this house. And this man, picture on the screen behind me, appears at the door and greets me. And he is a very large man with very large hands. And he just, you know, he looks like one of those like superhuman people, like an athlete. And I look into his eyes, not in a romantic way, okay? <laughs> but I, I just look the man in the face, okay? Strike the other part from the record. I look the man in the face. And his eyes are very familiar. Like I know this guy from somewhere. And then all of a sudden, something clicks. And I realize, Stanford Jennings? Super Bowl 23? The only touchdown the Bengals scored in that Super Bowl? The Super Bowl we were 37 seconds away from winning? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. 92 yard kickoff return, Stanford Jennings. This is amazing, okay? All this in my head, okay? All this in internal, I'm just standing there. And at some point, I realize, why is he just staring at me and I'm staring at him? And then I realize, in that moment, that he's waiting for me to actually hand over the pizza to him and not just stare into his eyes. And I left the house and I got back into my car and I didn't say anything because I was just so awestruck. You know, I was jot. I didn't say, hey, you're Stanford Jennings. It's so amazing. I just didn't say anything. And I got back into my car and I'm going, wait, did that really just happen? This is where the disciples were, but you probably need to multiply it by about a thousand. Did Jesus really just rise from the dead and appear to us? When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You have to also remember, Jesus' appearance wasn't just a one-shot deal. 
Check out um, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. This is the physician Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote an account of all the things that happened in the early church history and uh, for the, of the first church. And Luke writes this in verse 3, chapter 1. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So this happened over a period of time. I think Jesus knew you just go in a flash and then you leave and maybe it's not going to register because it was so absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, it wasn't until we get into Acts chapter 2 where we see all of these followers, these believers in Jesus gathered together and there's this mighty move of the Spirit of God. And it's at that point that these disciples become bold and courageous. It's at that point that this thing really starts to take off. So this took time. This was a process. There were doubts along the way. Even so, even so, there's a huge part of me that just wants everything to be nice and tight. What I want is I want for the Gospels to say, for me, in my doubt, in my faith, I want the Gospels to say that as soon as Jesus appeared, case closed, done. Everyone was assured with absolute certainty beyond the shadow of a doubt. And that's not what it says. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And that is most disturbing no matter how you try and explain the situation away. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus has to say because actually his response is most disturbing as well. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, for many of us in this room, this is an incredibly familiar passage. This little passage, these few verses, are known as the Great Commission from Jesus. This, these are the marching orders to the church. This is the church's mission. This is what followers of Jesus are supposed to do. And so many of us have heard this before. But what's interesting is if you listen to these instructions through the lens of those who are doubting. So put yourself, just imagine for a second that you're one of those disciples going, is this really happening? I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. And you're having major doubts. And here's Jesus. And he says, okay, guys. Now it's your turn. It's time for you to step up. Uh, but Jesus, uh, hand in the back here. Um, yeah, I still have like tons of questions, okay? So before we get to like all the go stuff and you're the leaders now, like 
Can, can we sit down? We don't have an instruction manual. Like you've been doing all the miracles and you've been doing all the teaching and you've responded to the questions. We actually have all the questions. Remember, we ask you because we're confused too, but we act like we're not. You know, like Jesus, can you please, like hold on, doubting here, hello, like still, can, you know, questions. Jesus is like, okay, put your hand down. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go. You're going to lead. You're going to step up. You are now going to carry this forward. This is the greatest message of God's love for the world. You're going to take it and go. You're going to lead others to me. How'd you like to be one of those disciples? And then, guess what? 40 days later, poof. Jesus, he's gone. Don't worry, guys. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You think that's reassuring to a doubting disciple that's now got to go out and face Pilate and the chief priests and the others who put Jesus to death? I mean, it sucks to be them. I don't think any one of us would want to trade places with those disciples. But they did it, didn't they? They went. They didn't let their doubt stop them. They went, as Jesus told them to do. Now, surely, these verses, they don't apply to us today. Like, when we doubt, do they? When we're the some who doubted? I mean, surely those instructions they're only reserved for the most convinced followers of Christ, right? Like if we have questions we can't answer and doubts we haven't figured out, surely Jesus isn't speaking to us today, is he? Well, here's the most disturbing part. He absolutely is. He is. We are called to go to step up and to lead. Now, just so we're clear, this does not mean that in the midst of you as a follower of Jesus, in the midst of your doubts and your struggles, that this is like, okay, cool, so you know, you're supposed to um, sell all your possessions and go to a third world country and be a missionary, or you are supposed to become like a street preacher on the corner every time you're not working or doing anything else. You're supposed to be, you know, preaching the gospel out there on the streets or become some televangelist or, you know, whatever. Okay? That's not necessarily what that means. But here's what it very well could mean for us in this room. Let's just say that you're here and you enjoy this church and you love God and you certainly, um, you know, you want to see other people come to understand God's love through Christ. But you have tons of questions and lots of doubts and, you know, you don't even want to engage in conversations with people sometimes because you're worried that they might ask you something that you don't know. But you have a huge heart for kids. You love kids, teenagers, whatever. You love kids. But the thought in the midst of your doubts, that Jesus might be telling you to go and lead and like be a teacher, like say in our Graceland or 930 Club program or something like that. That's terrifying to you. Because what in the world would you possibly say if one of those kids turned back to you and asked you a question and you had no idea what, what to respond? 
what if they pushed on a doubt that was a huge doubt for you? And you just had no answer and you were like, oh my goodness, I, I wouldn't even know. It's terrifying. Jesus is saying, go. Don't let your doubt stop you. Push into that. Say you're somebody here and you just really like good conversation. You enjoy discussion. And um, you've never led a group uh, in your life. You've never led like a Bible study or anything. And you haven't read the Bible cover to cover. You know, you don't have all the answers. You haven't been to seminary. And you have questions. Is Jesus really saying that like you could lead a group? Well, you may not have all the answers. But you know enough. You know enough about who Jesus is. You know enough about what he expects of us. And you know how to kind of course correct when something's getting off track. You've been in enough groups that feel funky, you know what I'm saying, to where you know that that's when the leader needs to step in and make sure that, that you get things back on track. And you know how to conduct an honest, fair conversation as we talk about things of faith. And so maybe the thought is terrifying, but maybe actually Jesus is saying, even in the midst of your doubt, you need to step up. You need to step up and you need to take on a leadership role within a group. Maybe you've always thought it's awesome coming in here and you feel so welcome, you know, and you see people volunteering everywhere, but there's a part of you that is nervous about doing it because you have doubts and questions and you think, well, as soon as I get like formally involved and I get like a name tag on here, someone could walk up to me and assume that I'm supposed to know the answer to something and I don't know it. And so you, you just kind of step back and say, you know what, till I get these doubts figured out, till I get my questions answered, I'm just going to kind of come in and come out. But I'm not, I don't think I'm ready to step up and serve. And what Jesus is saying is we got to go. We face our doubts. We push through and we become part of this amazing movement of God's love into the world. Or maybe you have someone in your life and you know they desperately need God's help right now. They desperately need it. You would just love it if they came to church one Sunday because you know it would just be so good for them. But you're terrified to talk to them about it because of what they might think of you or maybe if they started asking you questions about your faith and all of a sudden you can't really explain yourself very well. And this would be like your one chance and you blow it. Jesus is saying, you know what? That hand in the back, Jesus, wait, I don't understand. You put your hand down. We're going. Don't stop. Don't let your doubts make you stop. We are going. Do not allow your doubts to keep you on the sideline. Do not allow your doubts to prevent you from missing out on what God is doing in this world and how we all get to be a part of it. Now, if you're here this morning and you're at a place where you're like, well, I'm not even sure I know who Jesus is. Like, you know, I, I, your doubts are, you're not kind of coming from, I'm following Jesus and I believe in him, but I have a lot of doubts. You're coming from like, I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know about anything. That's awesome. We are glad that you're here. Like, and just the fact that you feel this is a safe place to be able to express that is fantastic. You get a free pass on this passage right here. 
okay? You get a free pass. So if you're with someone who brought you and you know that they're a follower, you can turn and laugh at them, okay? Because they get all the disturbing tension in this, okay? This is, this is Jesus' words truly to his followers. So just take a big sigh of relief. Oh, okay, good, good. All right, you're off the hook today. Just be careful you don't push in too much and start believing because then <laughs> something else happens. But anyway, you've been warned. Um, so... The bottom line is, Jesus says, we got to go. Don't let your doubt stop you. Now, here's why I think this is brilliant. We're going to close with this, and then, um, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to go. But here's why I think this is, this is awesome. Because when you, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of all your questions that you still haven't gotten resolved, okay, you're following Jesus, but man, you got a lot of stuff that you would really love, you could just kind of get worked out. If you go in the midst of that, if you step up in the midst of that, here's what happens. In order to step up, you have to have God's help. I mean, you don't even have to think about it. You instantly pushing into that space, that uncomfortable space, will force you to your knees to say, God, you've got to help me. Please make sure that they don't ask that question. (laughs) Or, or, God, just give me wisdom. Give me, help me in that moment to know what to say. I will tell you this too, in case you're you're internally freaking out and you're trying to rationalize why you're disagreeing with me and there's no way you're going to do this. Okay, Let let me give you to me, one of the most powerful responses you can give to any question that you don't understand, okay? Someone comes to you, whether you're serving with our children's ministry or you're serving on one of our volunteer teams or whether you've invited a friend to come to church and they ask you a question or you're in a group and you're, you're playing some sort of a role in the group and someone turns to you and asks something and you don't know. You ready for this? This is worth the whole sermon right here. They ask you that big question and you're like... <gasps> This is what you say. I say this probably more than any other thing way I respond to people. That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> now, here's why that's powerful, okay? You will not resolve every tension in the Bible. You will not be able to resolve every mystery about God. God is by definition a mystery to human beings, Okay? But what you do when you respond, like, that's, a, that's one heck of a question. I've wrestled a lot with that myself. You instantly draw that person in. It gives you amazing credibility. And it reassures that person, hey, wow, like, they don't have all the answers and they're still following Jesus? Maybe I can too. And without even answering the question in the way that they wanted or the way you wanted, you have answered that question in a different way. And I hope over the last three weeks, we can say now we're in pretty good company with a lot of other people who doubted. And they were able to still follow Jesus. So we get to rely on God. We push in more. We depend on God's help. It actually puts us in a place of humility, which is much more attractive to people, much more helpful to people than if we just are the Bible answer man or the Bible answer woman, because you know how much people love that. But the other thing is, when you push in and you're totally out there, not in your own strength and not in your own wisdom and you're, you are like out on that edge, that is where you see God move. And one of the biggest things that we want in the midst of our doubt, listen, listen, when you're in the midst of your doubt, what do you want so badly? 
You want God to show up, don't you? You want it desperately. Jesus says, go. Don't stop. Don't let your doubt make you stop. Keep pushing in. Step up. Go. Crazy, counterintuitive, disturbing, yes. But when you do that, you are so much more likely to see God move than you say, you know what, I'm just not going to go to church anymore. I'm just going to pull all the way back. I'm just going to wait for God. Hit me with a lightning bolt. Okay? That's not what I see here in this passage. He says, go. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Music team is going to come out and uh, close us with this song because we are going to need God's help to be courageous if we are truly going to push in in the midst of our doubts to this, we will need courage, not just courage that's in and of ourselves. So let me pray for you. God, we thank you for uh, the past three weeks of this series and how you reassure us that um, the doubt is a part of being a human being. That it's something, God, that um, we can press into because we saw people struggle with it We actually saw people take their doubts to you, Jesus, and we thank you for how you responded to those doubts. It's really disturbing that you tell us in the midst of all these doubts and uncertainty and questions and everything else that's going through our minds and our hearts that we just are supposed to go and like lead and and be your representatives, even with the doubts. But God, that's what you say to do. Help us push into that. But we can't push in without your help. We need you. We need your spirit. We need your power. We need your wisdom. We need you. Give us the courage to do what you're telling us to do, to step up and step in. We don't want to miss out. We want to be a part of what you're doing. Don't allow our doubts to hold us back. Push us forward. Give us the courage to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.